Hi, this is John and Valerie Domingo, and, and you're, you're listening, listening to Word of Hope Christian, Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's my joy to be with you for this Sunday sermon. It is Sunday, September 11th. Today is part four of our sermon series, God Goes to War. If you've missed any of the first three sermons, we're going through the entire book of Revelation in just nine weeks. And so we're just about halfway through. It's an epic journey. If you've missed any of the previous sermons, you can catch up right here on this media platform. Today's sermon is called The Wrath of God, and we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 to 17. So get your Bible or Bible apps out and open to Revelation 6. We'll be there in just a moment. Now, for the past several weeks, I've been saying that Revelation is all about imagery. And all too often, TV evangelists and teachers of Revelation try to teach that practically everything in Revelation is literal. This chapter has some amazing imagery in it with the lamb ripping open the first six seals on the scroll. Then what is commonly referred to as the four horsemen appear, and each of them are dispatched to carry out some pretty scary stuff. And while those images are powerful, I'm not going to spend time on them directly. You see, I believe that all those images point to the main message of this chapter, which is God's judgment on those who've persecuted and killed his people. I'll explain more shortly. Before I do, though, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the amazing privilege we have once again to gather and hear from your word. Lord, thank you for all that have come to listen and or watch today. We are so grateful for them. Bless them and their families as we seek you more in our lives. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Hey, have you ever heard the spiritual song, O Sinner Man? It's a long-time favorite. Back in the 1950s, in fact, it was recorded and written. It's so popular that over the years, it's been sung by dozens of groups. I found pages of versions on YouTube. It's been sung by groups such as Peter, Paul, and Mary, Three Dog Night, and a whole bunch of folk singers and concert choirs. When I first heard this song, I was struck by the haunting power of the question, Cinnamon, where are you going to run to? He runs to the rock, to the sea, to the Lord, and ultimately to Satan because he's come face to face with the wrath of God and he's so frightened he's looking for any way to avoid God's anger. But there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide because he had rejected God for so long that there was no longer any hope. Do you know where the writer of that spiritual got his idea? That's right, right here in Revelation 6. So get those Bible or Bible apps open to Revelation 6, let's look at verses 15 to 17 and follow along as I read. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive. That's some pretty scary stuff, isn't it? These sinners are running from God. They're running from the wrath of the Lamb. As I was preparing for this sermon, it occurred to me that some things are not quite right here. John 3.16 tells us, For this is how God loved the world. 
he gave his one and only Son. And in Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. Well, from these and other scriptures, we also know Jesus spent his time among the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the sinners. Now, to illustrate that idea, Jesus once told the parable of the prodigal son. I'm sure you know it. The son apparently hated his father and couldn't wait for him to die, so he demanded that his father give him his inheritance, which the father did. So the boy takes off, takes the money, goes to a far country, spends like there's no tomorrow. That is, until tomorrow came and he didn't have it anymore. His friends ran off and famine hit the land. Ultimately, he became so poor that he began to look to the food the pigs were eating, pea pods, and wondered if he could eat that too. And then he came to himself and he realized his father's servants ate better than he did. So he made up his mind that he'd go back to his father and he'd say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. When the son returned to the father, do you remember what the father did? That's right. He ran to his son and embraced him. Over and over again throughout the New Testament, we hear this message repeated. And it all seems to be summed up in what we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, which says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But here in Revelation 6, we have sinners running from the wrath of the Lamb. They're running from the wrath of the very one who died for them. So what's going on here? Well, the answer is found a few verses earlier in our text. Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. Let's go there. Follow along as I read. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they've done to us? Now there's a couple of things at play here. First, this scene and the ones in the following chapters show God's vengeance on mankind. As Hebrews 10.30 tells us, For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. As I said a few minutes ago, the major focus in Revelation 6 is God's judgment on those who've persecuted and killed his people. Jesus told us that was going to happen when he said in Luke 6.22, what blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? And in Luke 21:17, everyone will hate you because you're my followers. John wrote in 1 John 3:13, don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. And Peter told the Christians of his day in 1 Peter 4:12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Did it happen? Yes! Within the first three years of the early church's existence, the Apostle James was executed, Peter was thrown into prison, Philip was stoned to death, and a man named Saul had Christians arrested, jailed, beaten, and even killed. And that was just the beginning. Down through the ages, Christians have been mistreated, tortured, and killed for their faith. On this date, in 2016, in the Philippines, a church elder was murdered by Muslims. According to the website opendoorsusa.com, in just the last year alone, there have been over 360 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. In the last year, 5,898 Christians killed for their faith. In the last year, 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings attacked. 
and in this last year, 4,765 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. And according to a 2019 report, government restrictions and social hostilities towards religion have risen in 187 countries. Now, let me give you a little perspective there. There are only 195 countries in the world, and 187 of them have social hostilities toward religion or government restrictions toward religion. That's crazy. This is not a new situation, though, for believers. Christians have been suffering and dying for their faith for centuries, and Revelation is telling us that God knew this would happen and it made him angry. In fact, he was so angry that he said in Romans 12, 19, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Folks, you really don't want to be on the receiving end of that kind of anger. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. Now, the Message Bible translation of that verse says it this way, When the Master Jesus appears out of heaven in a blaze of fire with his strong angels, he'll even up the score, by settling the accounts with those who gave you such a bad time. And we have the same promise God gave Abraham back in Genesis 12:3. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. Through these years in ministry, I've seen that come to pass. I've gotten to the point that I pity anyone who tries to hurt me, not because I'm something special, but because I'm a child of God. I literally feel sorry for them because I know the truth of Revelation 6. You don't mess with God's people. Amen? Amen. As Hebrews 10.31 tells us, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the first thing I see in Revelation 6 is this. God will bring judgment on those who hurt his people. But there's something else here I think is really easy to miss. God's judgment is not just about vengeance. It's also about reaching out to the lost. Now, in that song that I mentioned earlier, that song, Sinner Man, in one of the verses, it says, Run to the Lord, Lord, won't you hide me? Run to the Lord, Lord, won't you hide me? Run to the Lord, Lord, won't you hide me? And the Lord said, Sinner Man, you should have been praying. You know what that verse is saying? It's saying, it's too late, Sinner Man, you should have been praying. But you didn't, so don't bother me. You've messed up big time and there's no hope for you now. Now, i got a real problem with that. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked change their ways and banish the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God and he will forgive you generously. So as long as the wicked are willing to repent, God will forgive. That's the message throughout scripture. Hebrews 9, 27 tells us each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment. But these guys in Revelation 6 aren't dead yet. Until they die, they still have the opportunity to repent. And besides, Revelation 6 does not say that the sinners were appealing to God. What were they doing? These folks were not running to God. They were running away from him. In fact, in the text, verses 15 and 16, Revelation 6, 15 and 16 says, Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person, all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. These folks aren't appealing to God to hide them. They were calling on the rocks and mountains to fall on them and protect them. Did you know that God punishes people to get their attention? Did you know that there are times in Scripture where God disciplined entire nations in order to get them to repent? You see it repeatedly in the Old Testament prophets. 
Israel or Judah would neglect God, worship other gods, sacrifice their children to idols, engage in all kind of evil things, and God would punish them to get them to repent. In Psalm 32, 4, David spoke of how God dealt with him after he had sinned with Bathsheba. He wrote, Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. It was a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament. God would slap folks down in order to wake them up, and he hasn't changed in that regard. He's still working on sinners now as he did back then. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is John 16, 7 and 8, where Jesus says, It is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the Advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. So what does that word convict mean? It means that someone has been found guilty of an offense. And as a result, it usually means the person is going to feel their guilt. And that's the Holy Spirit's job, to convict people of their sin, convince them of their need for righteousness, and remind them there's going to be a coming judgment. Now, how is the Spirit going to do that? Well, by making them very uncomfortable. I recently read a story about a woman who came to a particular church with her children, but their father was not a nice man. In fact, he beat his kids and constantly berated and belittled his wife. For some reason, the man took a liking to the pastor. So once in a while, the pastor would go to their home, hoping for a chance to speak to the man. But this man always tried to justify his behavior and tried to make himself look righteous in how he mocked and ridiculed his wife. Finally, the pastor had enough of that man's actions and told him exactly what he thought. And he told him he was going to pray that God would make his life miserable for seven days. At the end of the fifth day, the man called the pastor and begged him to stop praying that prayer. You see, the spirit was doing his thing and was trying to bring that man to repentance. There's an interesting passage in Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18. It says, don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. For the Lord will be displeased with you and will turn his anger away from them. Now, why on earth would God be displeased if I rejoiced in the downfall of an enemy? And why would he turn his anger away from my enemy if I do that? God said in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6, In his justice, he will pay back those who persecute you. So why would God get upset? We're just cheering him on from the sidelines here, right? Well, here's the deal. If I rejoice when my enemy falls, I prove that I've missed something. You see, Jesus came to die for sinners. Now, are my enemies sinners? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's part of the reason they're my enemies. But Proverbs 24 is hinting at the fact that your enemy is being punished for a reason, and that reason is not to make you happy. You know what the reason is? The reason is this, God is punishing your enemy so that you can show them grace. That's right. That's why scripture repeatedly tells us things like, if your enemies are hungry, give them food to eat. If they're thirsty, give them water to drink. Proverbs 25, 21. You see, God punishes your enemies so that you can come into their lives and show them God's love and lead them to repentance. If you go rejoicing over their falling down, you can't do that. It's a little hard to tell people that God loves them when you're laughing behind their back. The only way we win sinners is by showing that we care for them. You and I need to be constantly reminded that we were not saved so we could be pampered. We were saved because we were going to hell. We were saved because we didn't stand a chance without the mercy of God. 
It's not that God doesn't want you to have a better life. It's just that God has saved us to become something more than just self-centered and self-serving individuals. God saved you and I and then enlisted us to be his missionaries to a lost world. God is at war with Satan and his objective is to win back from Satan the souls the devil has taken captive. Amen? Amen. I want to close by telling you the story of a man who hated the church absolutely hated the church. He lived in a country on the other side of the Atlantic. He was responsible for the imprisonment, torture, and death of many Christians, and it was his life's goal to destroy the church. He once said, I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women, and throwing them in prison. If anybody deserved to go to hell, this man did. If anyone deserved God's wrath, this man deserved it. Then one day, Jesus paid this man a visit. We're told that as he was traveling along a road, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what to do. You remember the story, don't you? Saul, whom we know as Paul, was blinded by Jesus and had to be led by hand to a house in Damascus where he fasted and prayed for three days. Jesus had knocked Saul down in order to wake him up. Then Jesus went to a man named Ananias. Ananias isn't mentioned anywhere else in scripture. This is the only time that we meet him right here. Then Jesus goes to Ananias and he says, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. That's Acts 9, 11. And do you remember what Ananias said? He said, but Lord, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls on your name. Now I have it on pretty good authority. That is not what the original Greek actually says. The original Greek actually says, you got to be kidding me. Well, okay, no, that's not the original Greek, but that's what I would have said. Now, why doesn't Ananias want to talk to Saul? Because Saul is the enemy. Ananias lives in Damascus, and he knows that Saul was on his way to arrest him and his family and his friends and put them in chains, take them to prison, maybe even kill them. If Jesus had told Ananias that he'd knocked Saul down and blinded him, I can picture Ananias saying, All right, way to go, Lord. But as much as Ananias may have hated Saul, he loved God more, and he was willing to obey. So Ananias went to Saul and placed his hands on Saul's eyes so he could see again. He told Saul all that God wanted to do in his life, and then he baptized him into Christ. You know, this is the only reason you know Ananias' name. Ananias had never been important enough to get his name in the Bible until this incident, but from that day on, he was known as the man who baptized the man who wrote half of your New Testament. He was the man who baptized the man who planted churches all across Asia. He is the man who baptized the man who embodied everything we think about when we think about the ultimate example of Christianity. Now, here's the deal. You may not think that you're that important, but if you're willing to go to your enemy when they're struggling and share with them the love of God and hope of his forgiveness, then you have a chance to literally change the world because the enemy you win to Christ may be the enemy who shakes the very gates of hell. We serve a God who has gone to war against Satan. We have been enlisted to storm the very gates of hell, and we will succeed if we trust God to do what he's promised.
To God be the glory. And all his people said, Amen. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.